Sanctity means having the quality of being sacred or of ultimate importance. And so commonly included in the definition is the word inviolable or inviolability, okay, which means protected from violation or protected from assault. Uh, those two words, sanctity, sorry, I'm coming in pretty hot, sanctity and inviolable, explain why these churches have come together uh, to shed light on the fact that, that something with sacred quality is under assault. Something of ultimate importance is being violated. The God-given dignity and worth of human life is being ignored by many in our day. And there are lots of front lines to this, uh, to this battle. Uh, one front line is physician-assisted suicide, which California has recently legislated um, in the last few years, the End-of-Life Option Act. There's advanced technology and in, in bi uh, biological uh, technology and stem cell research and embryonic research, fetal genetic testing, and a host of other developing fields that can undermine the value of human life in the name of scientific progress. So there's many fronts that the sanctity of human life is being assaulted on, but this morning we're going to direct our attention to the, to the most uh, pressing, uh, which would be the issue of abortion and aborted fashion drugs. And each of these front lines, it's important to know that the most vulnerable are being preyed upon, and so that's why churches across the nation and really globe are dedicating time to this. Now this can be a divisive topic. And it could be an emotional one, right? We know that. So before we get into this, I actually want to spend a good chunk of our time talking about why we would bring this up and why we would address this. Okay, as a newly uh, formed or merged church, it's important uh, to understand kind of the foundation of why we would interact with topics uh, like this uh, in the way that we do uh, in this direct way. So. Um, why would we address this? Okay, I'm going to give you two main reasons. This is probably going to be about half of our time this morning, but it's important for what follows as well, okay, and, and other times we address topics. Um, two reasons. First, uh, and this should be in your little handout there, that it's an issue of great moral and cultural consequence. An issue of great moral and cultural consequence. So this is a life and death issue, okay? And part of the strategy of those who perpetuate the practice of abortion do so with the intent of hiding what's really going on. And they smear the windshield, you could say. They divert attention away from the dark corners of this practice, and, and sin thrives in darkness. Moral laxity exists in an environment full of half-truths and misinformation. It's easy to be deceived in an environment like that. Just to give you some idea of the scope of this, the Guttmacher Institute, um, which is one way, one organization that measures and counts the total number of abortions in a given year. The CDC is another one that does it, but this institute projected that in 2016, there were roughly 885,000 abortions in the United States, or one every 36 seconds for the entire year. This was roughly 15.34% of all known pregnancies. Our culture's convenient confusion over the nature of human life has perpetuated this practice which kills innocent life. 
An average of 2,424 humans are dying every day to abortion. That's why this is a pressing issue. Very straightforward. And I would imagine that if over 2,400 people disappeared in the nation every day, that that would become an issue of focus right, for our, our country. That would be a news story. The people who matter a great deal to their creator are losing their lives. That matters a lot to him. And so therefore, it matters a lot to us. In April of 1963, a group of religious leaders got together to write a letter of concern regarding some people who had been stirring up their city in recent days. And I want to cite this, as, this example as just a transferable example for why we have to address issues like the issue of abortion. So these religious leaders, these pastors, got together and wrote the following to this dissenting group that was in their city. We expressed understanding that honest convictions in these matters could properly be pursued in the courts, but urged that decisions of those courts should be in the meantime be peacefully obeyed. However, we are now confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our citizens directed and led in part by outsiders. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. We do not believe that these days of new hope are days when extreme measures are justified in our city. We further strongly urge our own community to withdraw support from these demonstrations and to unite locally and working peacefully for a better city. When rights are consistently denied, a cause should be pressed in the courts and in negotiations amongst local leaders and not in the streets. We appeal to both groups from our citizenry to observe the principles of law and order and common sense. This was a letter written by local pastors in Birmingham, Alabama to Martin Luther King Jr. as civil rights protests broke out in Alabama. And so ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ said to King that his, quote, extreme measures weren't justified. Now why would I bring that up? Because it's possible for society and even the church to get acclimated to a culture that accepts that which is unacceptable, and to breathe the culture's smog long enough to accept it as normal and call it clean air. What's normal isn't always what's right. Compromise is a slow drift. You've probably seen that in your own life, right? It's not a one-time decision. And so we have to address the idols of our day, whether it be civil rights in Birmingham, Alabama, or the issue of abortion in Sonoma County. We must address those idols even if we find them in our own hands. Our young people must be clear on this in the future as future generations wrestle with these issues and spin-offs of these issues and tangents that come as a result. So we desire not only to get this right in our church, but we desire to be, to be salt and to be a preservative for the culture at large. Our church needs to have a prophetic voice into culture, even if we're a prophet in our own hometown and rejected for that reason. Now some here might believe that this is an issue for lawyers and judges and politicians to sort out. And I think that way of thinking is, is 
is the result of the larger church in the United States suffering from a misunderstanding. And this misunderstanding says that the nature of Christian faith is privatized. Basically, you keep your religious beliefs to yourself. Have them in the pew, have them at home, but that's kind of the extent of it. But the nagging problem with this is how public the claims that God makes are. He is the creator of everyone and everything. His law is the standard for righteousness for every uh, human being on planet Earth. His judgment will be for all people. He's a radically public God. His claim in our lives as individuals and congregations and societies is total. So trying to contain the implications of Christianity to the private life is like trying to contain the color blue in your house. You can't do it. So Christ claims everything around us and in us, and we follow Christ anywhere and everywhere, including the public square. So the first reason we address this is because it's an issue of great consequence that demands a response, and we must follow Christ, even if it means following Christ into the public square in a very public way. Now the second reason, and this will probably be more uh, pressing to you, is that biblical teaching rejects the practice of abortion as immoral and offensive to the glory of God. Biblical teaching rejects the practice of abortion as immoral and offensive to the glory of God. I think the, it should have been on the back of your handout, but I think page two of your handout is a summary of what we're going to go over. It's just looking at the, kind of the, a snapshot of the biblical case against abortion. I thought it would be important just to ground us on that before we look at this text in Ephesians chapter 5. So first, does the Bible ever explicitly reject the practice of abortion? Isn't the Bible silent when it comes to this issue? Well, the Clergy Advocacy Board of Planned Parenthood actually uses this as, a, as justification for not um, addressing this issue or for their, for their advocacy, really, for abortion. So is it true that the Bible doesn't directly condemn the practice of aborting babies in the womb as we know it? Well, yes and no, right? It is true that the actual specific practice is not directly addressed in a specific verse as we know abortion and the practice of abortion in our day. Okay? But the question is not, can I find a verse somewhere exactly, but does silence equal approval, which it clearly does not. Right? The Bible is silent about all kinds of things, like pornography or uh, lynchings or whatever uh, immoral practices that we've seen in the history of our country. So silence on things doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't address them. Because there's a whole host of secondary questions that come as a result with this issue that are preloaded in the issue of abortion, like what is human life? And what happens when the freedoms and the, the will of, of one person collides with the freedoms and the will of another person? Whose freedom wins? How much does freedom cost and should we pay that? These are the questions that we can be confident that the Bible does soundly answer in rejecting the practice of abortion. So a quick biblical sketch for why we would say the Bible rejects the practice of abortion. There's four fundamental uh, reasons, I think is what I gave you. There's more, I just wanted to try to give you something succinct. So that should be on your second sheet there. We have God as the sovereign creator, sustainer, and enter of life. And that's the first one. There's 
a host of verses there, but this is straightforward. To discard the humanity of the person is to defame God's glory as creator. If you tarnish and you discard the art, you're saying something about the artist. There's a relationship between these two. And Psalm 139 is a very well-known passage that addresses this. It says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Who is so intricately and carefully weaving these creations together? It's God. So he is the creator and the ender and the sustainer of life. Now we need to say that there are rare exceptions to abortion that are made, and decisions that are made medically in order to preserve life. So it would be important for us to distinguish that we're mainly talking about abortion as it's practiced for the purpose of convenience. Okay? There is a way to value life and to still have this done if your life is in danger. So we need to clarify that. But first, God is the sovereign creator, sustainer, and ender of life. Number two, the developing child in the womb bears God's image and is described in human terms, implicitly assigning them personhood. Fetuses are known and named. They're affected by sin. They identify Christ in the Bible, right? John does. Listen to Job 31, verses 13 through 15. I've just made one of those verses bold with each of these points, and I'll just hit one of those. You can look up the rest later. But here's what Job 31 says. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? So Job is talking about his servants and people who work for him when they complain. And if God is going to come to their defense, what, what am I going to say? And then Job continues, Did not he who made me in the womb make him or her? Speaking of the servant. And did not one fashion us in the womb? What Job is saying, and considering he's trying to figure out how should I treat people? How seriously should I take the complaints of my servants? And he actually takes into consideration the fact that God fashioned his servants in the womb. And knowing that changes the way that he interacts with his servants. Why? Because Job knows people are made in the image of God and the way that you treat the image of God is reflective of how you treat God. It's a fool's errand trying to establish when a baby or when a baby in the womb becomes a person. You've heard people try to define this and Scott Kusendorf uses a helpful <laughs> acronym that I've, I've listed there for you that describes kind of the four fundamental differences between a baby inside the womb and a baby outside the womb. Now he does this to point out that none of these differences really warrant taking human life, uh, but it's, it's interesting to hear people use these. So he uses the uh, acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. That'll help you remember when you're uh, having a discussion about this. 
So what are the differences outside the womb and inside the womb? Well, size, right? Babies outside the womb are larger, typically, than babies inside the womb. But we know that that's not a good way to evaluate personhood, right? Someone who's 300 pounds is a more human than someone who's 200 pounds, right? Size doesn't determine personhood. The L is level of development. So a lot of people point to the fact that babies in the womb are, aren't as developed or, or fully along as people who are outside, but well, we can't actually live with that idea in the real world. How would we view developmentally disabled adults? if level of development was the way that we determine personhood? Would people with PhDs and a lot of intellect be more human than people who didn't? So level of development can't be the way, can't be the distinction. E is for environment. He asks, what, what magical thing happens in the birth canal? <coughs> Take someone from discardable material in the view of the world to becoming a person. Those few inches determine personhood. Is that really what we want to say? And D is for degree of dependence. You know, there's thousands and thousands of elderly people who would die in just a few days without help from other people. Some fetuses statistically may have a better survival rate than some elderly in our nation, or especially reliant. So are we willing to view those elderly and medically you know, more needy folks as non-human because of their dependence? See, the heart of this issue is this identity of this baby. Is it a human or not? People want to talk a lot about sidebar type of issues that affect very few people. But they do that in order to take the, the attention off the main question. And you can really get at the main question uh, through a simple scenario, a discussion. This is uh, from someone else. I did not think of this, but uh, think of the scenario. You're at home in the kitchen uh, doing something, and you hear someone in your house, maybe, maybe a child in another room that you can't see, ask you the question, Daddy, Mommy, can I kill it? It'd be a disturbing question, first of all, to hear <laughs> from your child. So what is the next question going to be? What is it? What is it? Right? That's a fair question to ask. That's one you'd want to fill in. And what is it that you're going to kill? Right? The reason we do that is because we, we know that life is valuable. But what if the child responds back, well, I'm not really sure. No. Not sure what it is. <laughs> yeah, what is your response going to be? Probably not. Right? I hope. <laughs> for, for the sibling's sake, or whoever in that scenario. Um, so, just if you think about this scenario, the Bible makes it clear, right, that babies in the womb are persons, but even if you don't agree with that, even if the person you're talking to doesn't agree with that, if they can't confidently say what this is, the default is not to take its life. Default is to protect, to save. That's why the advances of, of ultrasound technology have been so helpful in this issue because people get to see. Mm -hmm. Legislation is being written because now they can tell the, the pain is being inflicted when this is happening. You can watch it. And so there's just 
As, as science and technology advance our ability to see and understand what's happening in the womb, the case is harder and harder and harder to make by the culture. Number three, God's law protects babies in the womb and condemns child sacrifice. See, God goes to great lengths to protect his image bearers, right? He condemns murder. He says not to kill the innocent in Exodus 23. It says in Proverbs 6:17, the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. He openly condemns child sacrifice in the Bible. Deuteronomy 12:31, it says this: You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire of their gods. That's like the end of the moral corruption scale in God's sight. Even do this. So God's law speaks against this. This is why he praises, for example, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. They disobey other commands uh, from, you know, they don't submit to the authority and they speak, speak deceitfully and they're praised for it because they refuse to participate in the infanticide of, these, of the Jews. Lastly, number four, God's people are to imitate his defense of the defenseless. See, we can sin in both action and inaction when it comes to this issue. Listen to Proverbs 24, 11 through 12. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Proverbs 31, 8-9 Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Who is more defenseless than a baby in the womb? So, why are we talking about this? We're talking about it because it's an issue of great moral consequence, and the Bible teaches that the practice of abortion is evil. Now, I want us to look at a, certain, at a specific passage of Scripture, and we're not going to be able to fully unpack this because of needing to lay that foundation, but if you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, I'd like to spend a little bit of time here. Ephesians 5, 1 through 17. been kind of heavy this morning. You acknowledge that. So let's, why don't we go ahead and stand, and we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read this text to us out of the English Standard Version. Okay? And again, this is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 17. Here's what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And you can be seated. As we think about this text and specifically in Ephesians 5, we notice that in verse 8 it says that they are light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So this is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, reminding them that God has transferred them out of the kingdom of darkness and put them in the kingdom of light. And so the whole reason he's able to give these commands and lay out these things is because they've been saved by Jesus Christ. It assumes the gospel underneath these instructions. Okay? The light of the world has rescued them from certain judgment. He has made them into light so they can live as light. Okay? That's really important for understanding this text. Because it assumes since the church has been made into light, then it's to live in God's light, not in the darkness. Right? The church is not to be characterized by evasion and hiding and covering up and these things. And a lifestyle marked by darkness is, in this text is said to include sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. And it says it in different ways, but it says it's, it, it shouldn't even be named among you. It's not proper. It's, it's out of place in the church because we are light. Now, when Paul notes these sins, he's not making a master list here. Okay? He's not citing everything. He's giving examples of what he calls later the unfruitful works of darkness. So these are not unforgivable things, but they are things that if they characterize us and there is not repentance, they point to us still being in darkness. This kind of makes sense, right? If you're in spiritual darkness, you would live according to that. If you're in light, you would live according to the light of Christ. It's the whole tree and fruit thing. You can know one by the other. I think it's safe to say that if crude joking made the list, then taking innocent life would make the list as well. If these things explain why the wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience, like it says, then wouldn't the premature ending of a human life that's made in God's image bring that same response from God? Think about just an individual instance from the Bible of Cain and Abel. Remember when Cain kills Abel? And God comes to him and says that Abel's blood is crying out from the ground? Meaning the injustice of that, the offensiveness of that to the glory of God, God took notice of. God knows when his children who are made in his image are discarded. And so when abortion is practiced out of convenience, and it's twisted into this way of serving the interests of the child, 
or of society. We say with Paul in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. What does it mean to live as light in this context of darkness? You'll notice verse 11 is kind of going to be our way forward. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So I'd like to encourage three simple things. To take no part, to expose darkness, and to please God. <coughs> so first, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. There's some of you who have been personally affected by abortion. Maybe you've got a close friend who recently made this decision. Maybe this is a part of your uh, life history. You've participated in abortion in some way. <coughs> when a child is aborted, scars remain. Right? We know that. But the ramifications of such decisions, they echo down the corridors of a person's life, and they may grow faint, but it's rare that they would ever go away entirely. If that's where you're coming from this morning, and this is just going to be a difficult morning for you, I want you to hear what Paul says in verse 7. Sorry, verse 8. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Paul seems to think that a life previously lived in darkness is still capable of living in the light and walking as a child of light. That's his belief, that's what he says. So living under condemnation and guilt from the past is trusting in the false promise of a faulty atonement. Your misery or your guilt cannot save you. It will just be bondage for you. And so if you have history with this issue, let me say, if you have repented of it and trusted in Christ, he is able to forgive. He promises to do so. Hallelujah. You are forgiven for that. In fact, you are uniquely suited to take no part in this practice by helping others in the midst of this decision. You can serve as a hopeful and real-time word of caution to those who find themselves in unwanted pregnancy. You are uniquely suited to walk as a child of light in this way. Maybe you weren't touched by abortion in the past, and you might think that this really doesn't apply to you. I don't take any part of this, but Paul is writing to these Christians precisely because they were tempted to live as if they were in darkness. And the church, including our church, isn't above anything. Let's be really clear about that. In fact, John enters book Answering the Call. He says these damning words to the church, and I quote, Indeed, the abortion industry could not survive financially without paying customers drawn from the church. Unquote. The church will never be what God intends if we aren't willing to face our own lives, our view of sex, our view of our own sexual decisions, or the discipleship of our children to this end. So instead of only asking, how can we tear down the practice of abortion, we should also be asking, how can the redeemed church of Jesus Christ be modeling the beauty and joy of the Christian sexual ethic and family structure? Not how do we remove what's wrong, but how do we be what's right? You now you can convince someone of something in a couple ways. You can write an argument, and you can write the newspaper, and you can talk them through sled and all these things. But the beauty 
beauty of a life that's submitted to God and contentment in the sexual boundaries that he's drawn up and the family environment that he's made is, I would say, a far more compelling picture. We need both in this. It's easy to lob grenades at a distance with this issue, but it gets really complicated when you get up close to some of these situations. So addressing this issue is actually uh, a lot more like dying on a cross than winning an argument. The shape that it takes. So let me raise a few ways that we need to be watchful of hypocrisy in this way in the church. Let us be consistently pro-life with our own children and those near to us as we are on Facebook. We cannot soften our position when these issues hit close to home. Let us not argue that life begins with conception, but then remain uninformed when it comes to abortive passion method of birth control. Hey, there's there's uh, articles on the back table in the lobby if you'd like to learn more about that. What are we talking about? There's forms of the pill that have the potential to end human life and to, and to practice um, the abortive fashion in this way. And we need, to, we need to know that. We need to be informed about that. Let us not only think or act on this issue on one day in January. Let us be informed about many ways that our culture jeopardizes life, morning after pills and pre-screening tests and these other things that happen. Let our pro-life convictions result in direct, tangible, financial, and emotional support for those who are struggling with unwanted pregnancy and those who are trying to help through pregnancy crisis centers. Mobbing grenades is not the way of Jesus. I could press this a little bit further. We might feel like taking no part of abortion is fairly simple and easy to accomplish. I think, don't murder? Okay, no problem. But Jesus doesn't let us, let us off that easy, does he? Think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And what anger is and its relationship to these things. So let us not be disgusted with the abortion industry while tolerating inward anger towards others, which according to Jesus is a branch from the same tree. If you've found the same kind of narcissistic impulses in you that fund this abortion industry, those same impulses, they beat within us, don't they? Have you ever justified harming another person? How far will you go to serve your own convenience? I'm amazed at how well I know what I like and what I want. Have you ever resisted asking for help when you really needed it and did something drastic as a result? Ever tenaciously protected the plan for your life that you thought was the right way to go to the point of harming someone or doing something you regret? You see, those same impulses that are alive in the decision to abort uh, for convenience are alive in us. They might not take the form of that, but we can certainly come from a position of relating when it comes to this issue. So we need to find the right tone when it comes to this cultural conversation. The gospel is going to keep us humble and it's going to keep us from being obnoxious. And those are really important things. We are light because of grace. We are not light by choice or by moral superiority. Think about all the ways that Jesus Christ could have been outraged when he came to planet Earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. Yeah. 
It never would have stopped if his whole point in ministry was just constantly pointing out the sins around him, right? He knew what was inside of man, is what the Gospel of John tells us. And think about the example that, that he leads when he's able to, to graciously and truthfully interact with people in a way where sinners even are drawn to him because of that balance. He found a way to love and persuade. He never compromised and he never lacked compassion. And he is our model in how to lead in this area. So we are to take no part in that in the practice of abortion, but it's far deeper than just a decision to take the procedure. It gets down to the heart level of us, and it gets to how we interact with those around us. We need to expose darkness, secondly. Bringing light to darkness. Probably the most recent example of this is those undercover videos that were made of Planned Parenthood and the, the market for tissue and material and those things that surfaced. And you just see the response of our society when that was upended and that flashed all over the, the internet. Just that repulsion that, that happened with that. Because darkness was exposed. Darkness was exposed. So on more than one occasion in this text, Paul calls for us to think really hard. He says, let no one deceive you in verse 6. He says in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In verse 15, look carefully how you walk. And finally, understand what the will of the Lord is in verse 16. See, all these phrases assume that we need to be vigilant and watchful with our minds. We need to expose false, faulty arguments in this discussion. We need to not let anyone deceive us with empty words. So what do you mean, what empty words? I'll just give you one example there's many more, but we just need to, uh, for time's sake. One example of empty words when it comes to this discussion is the right to abortion. It's presented as a matter of freedom, whether it's the language of a woman's constitutional right to choose, or a woman's right to determine what happens to her body, or a woman's right to make choices about her health care, however it's phrased. The choice language can kind of, kind of paralyze us as Americans because we worship freedom. But is the person's freedom the ultimate trump card? Is that really the ace of spades? Because aren't there times when the limitation of our freedoms and the limitation of our choices is the right thing? That freedoms have to be restrained in a functioning society because freedoms collide, right? A few years back, when we lived in a different place, I disagreed with the freedom of my neighbor to play loud music at 2 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> I disagreed with that act of freedom because it invaded my freedom of sleeping and all of my family's freedom <laughs> to sleep. So we do not live in a world where freedoms kind of stay in their parallel tracks and never bounce up against each other. They do. That's the point. So I don't have total freedom over how to use my body especially if it harms the lives of others. The reason why pregnant mothers who use drugs are looked down on by society is precisely because they aren't choosing to use their bodies and make healthcare choices that are mindful of other people. But the easiest way to solve this problem when individual freedoms collide is just to deny that one side had them to begin with. 
to dehumanize the other. And so to categorize them as non-human, and you won't have to deal with the real implications of not just inconveniencing someone, but taking their life. Now this can be done kind of on a rational level of silly kind of examples, but there's also this Christian understanding that we belong to someone else. We've been bought with a price that our bodies are not even our own. So, what ought we to do when it comes to exposing this and, and thinking and, and, and articulating these things? One, we need to be equipped. We need to disarm arguments for abortion, and that's going to take time and thinking and mental energy. We need to read up on this. We need to get uh, books. We need to listen to people. There's countless ministries that are trying to draw attention to this. We need to be educated as we engage. But we also need to be brave. You know, darkness doesn't like to be exposed, right? It prefers the corners and, and the shadows. And so these catchphrases from pro-choice camps are widely accepted, and they are very, very wrong. And we need to challenge them. In the paper, on the blog post, in the conversation with the neighbor, we need to, to challenge these, these ideas. Pursue those you who hear who are maybe pursuing abortion and, and, and attempt to persuade them to get fully informed on what they're doing. So we need to be equipped, we need to be brave, but we need to be on our knees as well. Spiritual darkness is not exposed without a fight. We need to be seeking the Lord's help and power to expose the dark corners of culture. So pray for conviction, pray for opportunity, pray and give to Bridges Pregnancy Counseling Center, pray and fast for our nation. I recently heard a very convicting quote that essentially said that we can't take our desire to see things change seriously if we aren't regularly and consistently praying for them. I think that that's true. So, don't take part in it. Expose the darkness and last, please God. Please God. Keep God's pleasure as your goal. Verse 10 says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So this means that our thoughtful interaction and all this stuff, our careful analysis of this issue, this has this goal of pleasing God, not humiliating others. So we don't reject a cultural opinion because culture is bad. We reject it because it dishonors God. We're not eager to pick a fight. We're eager to obey. And so keeping God's pleasure as your goal will keep you from being obnoxious. It will, it will mean that the love of others will need to be in, in, included in your love of God. It will protect you from unhelpful extremism. Right? That you'll trust in his sovereignty as you grow in zeal for these issues. You know, we can quickly measure these things in terms of political victories. And I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to represent a, a political party. God help me if anyone ever preaches at our church to do that. Amen. But obviously these things intersect with, with the public, but we can't measure this just in terms of politics. John Piper says it well. He says, your job is not to win. Your job is not to control society. Your job is to say what God wants said. We are not called to win. We are called to witness. Yeah. Yeah. So the simplicity of that is helpful. So, this will keep us from extremism. It will keep us from being unhelpful and unprofitable. Keep the pleasure of God as your goal. Let's close with a word of hope. 
get our eyes on Jesus. Okay? We have a gospel that is big enough for a regretful mother, a scared boyfriend, an obnoxious pro-life advocate, and a lifelong abortionist. Our gospel can cover that kind of breadth. can offer redemption to those different categories of people. And that's really the backbone of Paul's call to the church, is to separate itself from darkness, and he's saying that because they've been made children of light. He says not to walk in these practices of darkness because another has walked in life offering love. Children need not die because a father has sent his son to do so. And these people have become light because of the gospel, because they've met the light of the world. Their light is not self-generating light. It's reflective light from him. So the backbone of Paul's exhortation is the person and work of Christ. The difference between light and darkness is not morality, but a bloody cross, the gospel. See, Jesus is the antithesis to the dark work of abortion. He gives up his life for undeserving people to be sons and daughters. He voluntarily offers himself up for those who have clung to their rights, for those who have been scarred by the practices of abortion, by those who have been silent by those who have been obnoxious, by those who have trusted in politics. He laid his life down for all those people. Even if the abortion issue was resolved overnight and every baby was spared, if we had no gospel, there would be no hope. And we have to keep this issue in, the, in context of the larger conversation, of this larger saving that Jesus is doing from darkness into light. That we ourselves are being transformed by this light from one degree of glory to another. That's good news. That the gospel covers all that ground. And so what I'd like to do is a little out of the ordinary, but I'd like to close our time some time for reflection and lament. Reflection and lament. I want to give us a couple of minutes of just silence to think on these things and to respond in a couple different ways. Maybe your response to this is repentance. You know, some of you may still be dealing with the shame of this. Others may be guilty of passivity. Others are guilty of just ignoring the issue. And without Christ, all we're left with is shame in this room. But if that's you, if you're living under that guilt and condemnation, I want you to, to remember that you are not beyond the saving work of Jesus. Your finite sin has been trampled by infinite feet. You are justified, not by the low degree of your sinfulness, but by the perfect degree of his righteousness. Maybe that's how you spend this time repenting either of your passivity in regards to this issue or of your history with this issue or something you know that is not right that you are not walking in all that is good and right and true as a child of light but maybe some of you could spend this time praying praying for this exposure that we've been talking about the exposure of darkness maybe you know someone specific right now who's wrestling with this Maybe you need to ask God for courage and diligence to address this issue as it intersects with your life. Maybe just spend this time praying for 
or nation. Or maybe you've, you've forgotten that pleasing God is really the target. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and this is all new to you and it's weird. And you just you realize that you, you have darkness in you that's called sin, that's rebellion against God. And you need to become light through the gospel. You need to begin pleasing God by trusting him through faith. So whatever it is, um, we'll have a few folks in the back of uh, the sanctuary ready to pray, if, you, if that'd be helpful for you if you need. But we're just going to have uh, three or four minutes of just silence to do this. Okay? So I'd appreciate um, just respecting that, honoring that. Let me pray for us as we enter into this time. And then we'll, uh, I'll come back up and include us uh, before we sing our final song. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you in the way that many in the Old Testament did, who were grieved at their own sin and grieved at the sin of their nation. God, you, your heart is troubled wrath is invoked an average of every 36 seconds this happens God would you help us in this time to own what's ours to come to you directly to, to, to hear from you to, to spend this time in, in quiet reflection prayerful intercession, or with a renewed desire to see you pleased with our lives. God, we want to be what you say we are, which is light. And we want to walk in the freedom and the beauty of that as a church so that we might be a witness to what you can do through the gospel. God, we are are kept tethered by the, by the phrase in this text, for you were at one time darkness. Each of us knows that. Those who know you here. Keep us humble. Keep us attentive and watchful during this time now, we pray. In Jesus' name.